Hi, my name's Kristen. I am a member of the church here. I'm excited to see you all here. We have just one exciting announcement, and I'm not even going to announce it. So here's Woo! Shayla. Yeah. Okay, so the majority of you know what Spring Showcase is, but some of you are new, and you don't know what it is, so I'm going to tell you what it is. So every year we invite students from our community to go to a Christian leadership conference in Bellingham, Washington, and there they take basically college classes to learn how to be a disciple on their campus and in the workplace. And so we, this is a valuable investment. A lot of people in this room, even if they're graduated, have been to Sikkim, and um, it's expensive. So every year we have this massive fundraiser called Spring Showcase to help support those people going to Sikkim. So... Spring Showcase is a showcase of high-quality talent, okay? It's not like a middle school talent show where you're shelling out a lot of money and don't get anything out of it. You get something out of it. It is a really fun night, and it's an investment, you know, in our students, in our community, and you, again, you get something out of it, which is great. So there are two shows. There's one at 2.30. There's one at 5.30. And then there's an art sale at, or one at 6.30, and the art sale is at 5.30, Um, I think a lot of times people think like, I already am buying a ticket for Spring Showcase. I don't need anything from the art sale. But then they get to the art sale late and they're so sad because all the good stuff has been bought like right at 530. So I encourage you to stick around and look at that. And um, yeah, just consider how you would want some of that art in your home. And also this year, this is new. We're selling VIP tickets and those are only available online. The link is at the bottom. They're $50. You get like a front row seat. You get a snack and something else. I don't remember what it is. But, oh, yeah, valet parking, Um, which hopefully whoever is the valet person knows how to drive your car. Um, But it'll be in Carrollton. Carrollton's not very far away. And we would just love it. You guys are, we just also want to say thank you because you guys also do a really good job at supporting our students and our ministries here. And so we're just thankful for you to be able to come out and support this. Um, I have one more thing I was going to say, and I don't remember what it was. Oh, yeah. Adult tickets are $20. Student tickets are $15. And we will be selling physical tickets after church today. So if you are a Sikkim student who is invited this year, will you stand up so everyone can see you? Woo! We have a lot more than that. It's spring break. Most of them went home. Also, our Corfas and staff also have tickets to sell. So if you forgot money, we can take it on the PayPal swiper after church. And then, you, oh, you guys can sit down now. Um, and also, you can buy tickets to support someone online. Great. Was that it? That is it. Right. Yes. Okay. So we're going to do offering now. Just remember that you're going to pass it straight across all four sections before going back. And I'm going to pray over it. Um, Dear God, I just thank you so much for um, this wonderful community that you have pulled together in Denton and that um, you work your ways in ways that uh, we get to be a part of it. I pray that you bless this offering and um, that we are intentional in our giving to you, Lord. Um, Send your name and pray. Amen. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. All right. A few more announcements. Um, Number one is I'm so sorry for not having coffee this morning. We did try to roast it, but we failed miserably twice. For those of you who don't know, we have a new brewing system, and uh, we've not figured it out. Last week was terrible coffee uh, and terrible tea. This week, thankfully, we just have slightly less terrible tea than many of you thought was coffee, which should say something about the tea. Um, We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Okay, it's an important part of uh, of our morning, so I'm sorry. I mean, it's it's affecting me, too. Normally, I've got my cup up here, and I don't have one, so I'm very sad, Uh, but uh, we'll keep working on it. 
Uh, it's pretty cool that we have so many people here this morning. I can remember a time even about a year and a half ago, two years ago, where when the college students were gone, we'd have like a group of 20 or 30 awkwardly doing church on Sunday. Uh, so the fact that we have uh, you know, well over 100 still when uh, spring break is here is pretty cool, pretty neat. Uh, that tells us that uh, we're doing what we intended to do, which is to keep people around here working and being involved in the local ministry in a college town, even when our, you've graduated college, which is a big part of, uh, of what we try to accomplish here. So that's cool stuff. Those of you who don't know me, since I do see some new faces as usual on a Sunday, my name is Brad. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, and uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series on Romans. This is one of the last times I'm going to speak. Next Sunday, Willie Hudspeth, uh, who many of you have heard before, president of the NAACP, will come and speak. Uh, Willie and I are kind of tag-teaming Roman five, Romans 5 and 6. I'm going to be focusing on one kind of side of this. He's going to be focusing on another. Next week, his sermon is titled, God of Our Enemies, uh, talking about the idea of how do people who are oppressed deal with their oppressors, Okay. And he's someone who has a whole lot more knowledge of that as an older black man, uh, both himself and then the people he works for as the president of the NAACP. And so he's going to have a lot of interesting things to share next week. We're still going to be in Romans 5 through 6. Not for sure if I updated that. Uh, then the week after that, I believe, and I've, I've posted this so I can't remember, Eddie Trauber, who is a counselor for our uh, family of churches, is going to come and talk about uh, adoption and the foster care system and things like that. He's someone who's adopted. He's a fa licensed family counselor. He's going to come and speak. Uh, and then Leslie's got a couple of those sermon series within there. And then Wes Helm, who's uh, one of our old, old alumni from uh, Focus at UTD, who works for Faith in Texas, which is an advocacy uh, organization that really informs people how to vote. Uh, they're the ones pretty much single-handedly who got rid of the payday lending uh, places in uh, Garland and have done a lot in terms of trying to uh, lower healthcare costs and things like that. So he's going to come and speak. Melissa Kinfield, one of our uh, other sociologists, we have a lot of them, is going to come and talk about immigration, blue-collar work. We did have a political scientist uh, from Criswell, who's the dean over there, say he was going to come, and then he decided to bail on us. So we'll all be really mad at him. He's just too busy, uh, so he won't be able to come. So we'll try to figure that spot out. But I say all that to say that this is one of the last times I'll speak. And uh, we've got a lot of other people coming in that uh, will give you kind of a different perspective on things. Um, yeah, uh, no, I'm giving up my job of speaking. You'll, you'll probably all be very satisfied with that after you hear the sermon today, which I talk a lot about planning my sermons in five minutes or 10 minutes. And what I really mean by that is that I've thought about it all week and I've just thought about it in my brain and then write down stuff. Well, today I literally planned the sermon in five or 10 minutes. Uh, and the reason is because I meant to wake up at seven but I didn't click that little button for the alarm, so I woke up at 9, so I had about 5 or 10 minutes to plan this sermon. So I had been thinking about it through the week, but I really literally planned this one. I have like four lines of text, uh, so that should be, should be interesting. Um, but I'll let you do the, uh, the prep work and the things that you need to do after. Uh, so uh, one more announcement that I wanted to make, which is uh, kind of random, but for those of you who don't know, one of our, and pretty much our big mission here as a church uh, is the Metro Auto Ministry, which is where we provide car loans, free car repairs to full-time college students, people who are disabled, veterans. Uh, we work a lot with uh, friends of the family, uh, an abuse shelter in Denton. Um, it's kind of started to blow up a little bit, and uh, it's a good thing in that we have uh, servicing a, or serving a lot of people. A bad thing in that we have no money at really any given time. 
Um, we have like nine car loans out right now, which is like crazy to keep track of. But one of the neat things that came from this last week is two different ministries in uh, Denton contacted us. One's called Vision Ministries uh, from Denton Bible Church. And what they do is they're a food pantry Monday through Thursday. Uh, they do clothing. They do a little bit of financial assistance with people. But if you've got people that you, uh, you know, think could be helped, and uh, you know, our church tries to do that as best as we can, and we're still working on a structure for benevolence so you know who we provide stuff for uh, each month, and it's a lot, especially for a church of our size. But if you've got people that you know that need those kinds of services and things, you can talk to one of us, or you can contact Vision Ministries directly. Uh, What what, what ministries do when they approach us about working on cars, they basically say, can we send people your way? And we're kind of like, well, there's a problem with that. Uh, We like to have two-way street relationships, and we you to vet people before we just have to vet them, and it takes us more time. And so we agreed that they would send us some cars, because Denton Bible's a huge church, so they can post on their Facebook page, we need cars, which we always do. And two, that if we have people who need assistance beyond the car stuff, which we do, we can send them their way, and we can have kind of a two-way relationship where we vet some people, and when we get a referral from them, they get a referral from us, we prioritize each other, and that's kind of what we're going to do with them. And so that's a pretty cool organization. We also got something that was kind of of less interest probably to many of you, although I would say put it on your calendars if you're poor and you need car work. On September 7th, Cross Timbers does a really big deal every year called Fix My Ride, and they have about 70 to 80 cars that come out from the Denton community, and all day they have about, I think they have 10 or 15 bays, which is what we call them in the sort of the car industry, where you've got two or three mechanics working to fix car problems. And a lot of those, you you submit something, what you need repaired, we get the parts, and all day fix cars. And there's a ton of cars that come through just that day, and they've invited us to be one of their sponsors for that and to have our own uh, one or two bays. The cool thing about it is it isn't just a bunch of random people who kind of know how to work on cars. It's people who are from dealerships and mechanic shops all around the Denton area. Uh, And so... Um, yeah, it's a pretty cool event. So, anyway, Metro Auto's kind of getting big, big deal. I mean, we have cards now, so no big deal. Uh, can we pass around the cards so everyone can see it? Or No, I would not get it back. Um, so, yeah, and uh, it's been pretty cool. We've started to get a lot of calls. And I just uh, encourage you that that's our mission as a community, and that's something that you guys support, fund, talk about, uh, because, you know, it wouldn't be that way if, if, uh, if you didn't. So I really, really appreciate uh, those of you who've... Uh, you know, had a part in that. All right, uh, here we go. Romans 5 through 6. I'm not even going to attempt to read much of it, and I'm not even going to really reference much of it, which I know is uh, not, not necessarily a great thing, right? Romans 5 through 6 is really difficult to understand, all right? And it's probably one of the most difficult passages. And not only that, but there's been so much discussion, so many books written, so many theological arguments that have come out of Romans 5 and 6. We're going to see this again in Romans 9 that it would be too difficult to even scratch the surface on uh, most of the arguments being made. And so what I want to do is give a general overview, uh, particularly from the vantage point of how this could relate back to political issues in, in the U.S. and uh, over the globe, okay? But Romans 5 through 6, pretty difficult. How many of you read that this week? How many of you just really loved it? You know, you really ate it up. You're just like, yeah, this is, I'm going to put a lot of verses on my you know, a uh, mirror from this, you know, through one sin, you know, one trespass, everyone's sin. You're like, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, no, because it's just really difficult. And there's so much there uh, that, uh, that you have to kind of unpack. And so my sermon title today 
And it's inappropriate, the first part, and I probably shouldn't say it, but whatever, I'm going to. I always do. Uh, Freeing Willie, whose slave are you? Freeing Willie, whose slave are you? You guys don't remember Free Willie? Okay, well, good. Well, well, there you go. Got a variety of meanings. Um, What'd you say? What are you going to say about Free Willie? He was a slave to SeaWorld, wasn't he? You don't think he worked at SeaWorld? <laughs> what was Free Willy about? Because I don't even remember that. I think I'm confusing like the, docu- the documentary Blackfish. Is that what it's called? No, I know it's a movie. I know you get to see his picture, you know. So many memes of him. I don't A boy saved him from what? He wasn't a slave? You wouldn't, he either was or wasn't. It's a subtle slavery. Did he not know he was a slave or what? You're not talking to me, but I'm just going to say, whose slave are you? So I was a slave. Well, good. That's even better than for my uh, illustration today. Whatever, man. I don't even care. Um, Whose slave are you? All right. So I've always had a problem reading through this slave imagery. Uh, because of a number of reasons. Number one is I'm not really a big fan of Paul calling me a slave to anything, okay? Uh, A slave of righteousness doesn't sound a whole lot better than a slave to sin um, because I'm still a slave. Not only that, but this is a very weird image to use when you're talking about choosing God or not. I don't know the last time you checked but or like, came to understand slavery. Slavery is not a choice. You don't make a choice. It is forced upon you. Now, we'll talk a little bit today about subtle slavery and how subtle slavery is much more common today than it was before, and in some ways, it, it, it presents its own new challenges. But the whole slave imagery from Romans 5 through 6 isn't something that I hear a lot of Christians really get excited about, you know? Slave to God, you know? God's slave. Um, you know, we love the adoption of sons and the whole imagery of moving from slaveship to sonship, uh, but the whole idea of slave to righteousness just does not connect very well uh, with me. So let's talk about something real quick. In Romans, uh, or in Rome at the time, about 30 to 40% of the population were slaves. Now think about that for a moment. That is a ton. At the height of the Civil War, we had about 11% of our population, or the height of uh, slavery in the U.S., we had about 11% of our population. 1860, uh, was about 4 million slaves. We had about 34, 35 million in our country, 10%. That doesn't even get close uh, to the amount of slaves in Rome. Now, there's an argument there. No, don't hear me saying Roman slavery was far worse than American slavery, because in some ways, American slavery was worse, and that's not really important to differentiate the two for now. The point is simply that to Paul's audience you were generally going to be a slave or at one point had been a slave and had gotten manumission, you know, which meant you were freed from it, or you were a slave owner, and there wasn't a whole lot in between, okay? There just wasn't. So this imagery would very much connect with them in a way that when we think about slavery, most of us think, well, maybe my ancestors were slaves, but I wasn't. Uh, Maybe my ancestors were slave owners, but I don't know. So what is this whole slave thing? And so to get to the bottom of how this would even closely apply to us, we've got to recognize, as always in texts, that you start with what these people were hearing. When half of their population almost were slaves, this big issue was applied. And the majority of the church were going to be slaves because the church in its infancy 
uh, yes, attracted high income and powerful people, but the majority of people were not those people. They were slaves or had once been slaves, okay? Including like, for instance, Luke, who was a physician. Most of us think, oh, well-educated man. Well, sure, but most physicians were slaves. So most likely Luke at, at some point or during his ministry was himself a slave, all right? And uh, so, and of course, slavery is itself a weird word. Sometimes we don't differentiate between indentured servitude, things like that. Yeah, go for it. Right, so slaves were often put on mission from their uh, benefactors, right? And particularly if you had gotten close to manumission or close to receiving your, um, you know, uh, freedom, you could, you could have more uh, sort of benefits because your owner or your benefactor or your patron would want you to stick around for a little bit longer in more of a, like, you know, kind of middle ground capacity. So it's not clear, and there's nothing to suggest to us that Luke was a slave uh, any better than the argument that he wasn't. I'm just simply saying almost all physicians during that time period were slaves. Physicians were not like powerful people. That medicine wasn't like a really, you know, uh, very well-developed field of of science, right? You know, so you could be partially educated, but uh, still be a slave. Does that answer your question, Kana? Yeah. Yeah, all right. So anyway, most people would, would recognize this. Now, move forward to uh, today, we have less than 0.1% of the global population in some kind of slavery. So we're talking in an infinitesimally small amount of people. The best estimates are somewhere between 50 and 75 million, which I'm certainly not trying to downplay this, but there's very few people in slavery today, and the kind of slavery we have today is not the easy, bought out, I bought someone, made them work for me. It's what we would consider subtle slavery, uh, indentured servitude. I'll give you some examples later, where people basically fall into slavery, get stuck, and can't get out, all right? And so that makes it very difficult. Most uh, 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 cases of slavery that we know about are in Asia Pacific area or in Africa, but still 0.1% of our global population would be considered in slavery, all right? And we tend to talk a lot about sexual slavery, because maybe sexual slavery is more common in the U.S., let's say, even though it's, again, an infinitesimally small amount of people, and I'm not trying to downplay that. But the vast majority of slaves are not themselves sexual slaves, per se, but slaves in terms of their work life. Now, does that mean they get treated, uh, uh, you know, and used as as sexual objects? Absolutely, that makes sense. But uh, sexual slavery, particularly as we think about it in terms of trafficking in the U.S., uh, has more to do with young, underage people being trafficked, and we'll talk about that later. But there's all kinds of subtle slavery going on in our society today if we broaden this understanding of slavery. I mean, if you think about slaves and the whole process of slavery, particularly in the U.S., it was about taking a group of people for economic reasons, separating them, and making sure that all they did was the work that benefited and profited uh, other people in other industries. Now, all of the stuff about seeing them as inhuman and all that stuff kind of came after. The whole point of slavery early on and really indentured servitude, and the first blacks that came to the U.S. were not slaves. They were indentured servants. The idea of slavery became a sort of faster, quicker way to make sure that we always had a a workforce so that they would do stuff. So we'd separate them, give them a little food, you know, give them housing, all that stuff. Well, if you look at some common ideas or analogies and images today of this, Think about gerrymandering, the whole idea of redistricting areas so that you make sure that people who are of color or poor people or whatever are away from and and can't influence and impact politics in a larger area. Now, gerrymandering is kind of a tricky thing 
because I would certainly say that if people are giving the money and funds and are usually, uh, you know, doing, um, let's say, uh, things in a minority level that a city with a majority population of lower income or poor people are doing, and they're not paying the same amount of taxes and stuff, well, then they may not have a right to have certain voting rules and regulations. But the tricky thing about gerrymandering is what often happens is we redistrict in a place so as to uh, minimize minority or low-income people's voice. All right, that's, that, that's the tendency there. I remember that even growing up in Plano when they redistrict Plano to make sure that Jasper didn't include poor kids like me, uh, and I'm not poor and never was, and you know, I was always in the middle class, but that was a very high-end part of Plano uh, that tried their best to get the legacy line, uh, only kids going to Jasper. And some poor kids like me who were right across the street, and again, I'm not poor, but for Plano's purposes, I, uh, and for Jasper's purposes, I was uh, maybe less than rich. I remember thinking in high school that I was embarrassed when people from my school would come over to my house because it was only one story. And, I mean, we had a very nice three, 4,000 square foot home. And 3,000, 2,000 probably, 25, yeah. But there was a house next door that was two-story, so I would actually have my friends drop me off at that house and pretend that was my house and then go around back, which uh, separated, you know, our houses were sort of uh, next to each other, so I would just go around there and then wait till they left and then move over to, the, you know, my actual house. That's just the, I grew up with a bunch of people who had a lot of nice cars. I had a very, very, very not nice car. But what's actually pretty cool about it is my car was so not nice that people loved to borrow it from me to go and basically just wreck it into things, and they would trade me their nice car for it. So it actually ended up working out pretty good. And if you want to know what my car was, as a 16-year-old in 1999, I had a 1983 Delta 88 Oldsmobile. All right, We're talking two-foot front end, red uh, uh, velvet kind of interior. I'm talking, I was not cool. Now, my parents really tried to, you know, oh, a cow Dallas Cowboys, you know, player had it at one point. And I'm like, who? Like, a bench warmer? Like, what? <laughs> this is not a cool car. I was, I was very embarrassed about my car. I'd park my car, actually, a lot of times at the Montessori, okay, uh, uh, way away from Jasper, and then walk to school. That's how embarrassed I was on my car. And I'm just, I'm just telling you these things because they're embarrassing to me, and it, it, I'm going to make a point about it a little bit later on, all right? So, awesome car. We had this uh, blue van. Uh, it was also like a 1983, and it was so old that it was literally a Toyota. And you know what the model was? Van, okay? <laughs> because back then, there was no genre of van. It was just, this is the model is a van. <laughs> My friends had a very non-affectionate racist name for that car. And again, when my parents would drop me off, I would try to tell them one location and then walk to uh, the next location. So there's definitely this sort of mentality, okay, within these areas that some people fit in and some people don't. And the whole gerrymandering thing comes back to this idea of let's put the workers in one place and let's put the people who benefit from that work, which they wouldn't say, but are managers of that work in a whole other area. We see the same thing with welfare. Uh, the whole idea that, oh, you have to kind of take money from the government instead of just going out and working. We don't pay much attention to where there are job opportunities, how often people have access to that. And while we certainly have a whole lot of people gaming the welfare system, the number of people doing that and staying in welfare is very, very low, meaning the people who are constantly uh, receiving welfare benefits, they go in and out and in and out and back and forth, and it seems this kind of non-stop 
ever-ending thing. Fair housing, again, a whole other issue. Being able to afford housing, being able to even uh, access housing when someone sees your face, hears your voice, all of these things are subtle things that remind us of the kind of slavery that, that takes place, where we, we literally uh, we want to make sure that we keep people in a place so that they're doing the jobs that we want them to do, staying in the place. And we say, well, you know, you can always work up, but the whole idea of actually working and getting out of the situation you're in is near impossible. And as Stephen Colbert says in his favorite book, I Am America and So Can You, my favorite book, there are a plenty of, uh, plentiful opportunities metaphorically for people to move up in our society. He's talking about the whole idea of the, you know, moving up the corporate ladder or whatever else. And he talks about how there's missing rungs and things like that. So, when we think about this, this slave stuff today, all right, we start with what Paul was ultimately saying when he talked about slavery. And that was simply that there is no such thing in life as not being a slave to something. You are either a slave to a good master or a slave to a bad master. And when Paul would say this, he's basically reminding them that in their own experience, they can recognize how good their master was. But even for those few slave owners in the church at the time, it was a challenge to them, are you a good slave owner like a God or are you not? Now, be careful there in terms of me you know, talking about God as a slave owner. I mean, but that's in essence what Paul's doing here. He's asking them the question to get them to think through, you have very little control over your life. The real question is, have you given the little control that you do have to a good master or to a bad master? Or are you in a situation with a good master or a bad master, whether it's in your control or outside of your control? Now, again, we do not think like this. You know, people talk all the time on Facebook about giving God control of your life. And Christians are the ones that give God control. As if the opposite of that is you have control over your life. The Bible does not at all present us as having control, much control over our life. Now, you can say that that's, you know, a time and place where people would have recognized that, understood it, understood the corporate and cultural, um, you know, uh, laws and requirements placed on people. But, But the scripture really has no essence or no sense of this idea of you controlling your life. Now, we can make an argument to say that we have more control than people in the past did, sure. But we've got to ask ourselves, at what level is that control really control over the most important aspects of our life? As a sociologist, I've been brainwashed to think that most people have no control over their lives. I've had to kind of balance that out in my own mind and my own ability. But really, that's the essence of sociology is you, you have no control. Nothing about your genetics or your personality or your individual capabilities or achievements are ever going to give you anything that your environment didn't already give you. And you take the same people with the same personality and the same capability and you put them in two different environments, it's going to be the environment, not the individual capability, skills, personality, genetics that are really going to dictate how well they do. Now, that's an offensive idea to Americans. That's why Americans hate sociology. Every person I ever talked to who took a sociology class always says, oh, that class was so depressing, you know? Yeah, it's depressing because, you know, you're th- having to think through something that uh, is challenging something you've been told uh, maybe your whole life about your individual ability. Paul makes it clear that you are either a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. And there's really no middle ground. And this is actually should be a very offensive idea to you. 
Uh, Paul talks uh, in another place, and probably his biggest insult about Satan, talking about you're either, you know, or he, he chides the, the sort of culture as being um, following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That is the best, uh, I think, criticism in my mind of Satan. The idea that you are following someone who just rules the air, nothing really. It comes, it goes, it's there, it's, it's fluff. It's, it promises one thing, doesn't really deliver, whatever. And Paul is saying that you serve one or the other. And this kind of light and dark, you know, two-way street reductionism has, has caused a lot of problems with people. People don't like it. Um, and, you know, we've got to deal with it because it's, it's really tricky. But the point of that is we serve one or the other. All right? Now, what we've got to get to is the way that we subtly serve them. Because most of us don't feel enslaved to sin or enslaved to God, we wake up every day, we see ourselves as having make, or making a lot of choices about our life, okay? This is it. We're making the choices. We're good to go. So, let's ask two questions, and then uh, that's pretty much what I got. The first one is, where is the freedom in free will? Free will is a kind of a religious idea uh, that is ultimately asking the question of how much choice do humans have in any given matter that, uh, that is important over their life. Now, let me back up a little bit. Because you could ask yourself the question, if we really have very little choices in life, why would God possibly design us like that? That's a real problem. If God really, uh, and this is the question that people are asking in Romans, if God really doesn't expect us to be successful, to be good, why don't we just sin and blame it on him? All right? Well, first of all, God did not create us to be weak and create us to be subject to sin in the way that we are. That is, in uh, his argument there about you know, one sin coming through uh, Adam, our choice in being independent from God. Okay? It's our choice in being independent from God. Every time I decide I'm not going to trust what God says about something, not going to believe what he tells me about the way I ought to live, about who I am, I am independently making a choice to be weakened apart from him. Because apart from him, I'm going to follow all of the voices and the slave masters of the world who have only their best interest in mind. It might look like my best interest at the beginning, but only my best interest in mind. And so I'm automatically weakened. And the same way that I chose a slave master at the beginning who I didn't recognize as a slave master who promised me all these good things, and then I'm stuck in slavery. And Paul's saying the only strong and strength, uh, strengthening position is for you to be with the master who created you and chose to create a life for you that he and only he can give you to the fullest, okay? That's what Paul's saying. And so anytime you take a position of independence from God, you ultimately serve some other master. And I'm not going to say Satan because I think that uh, this whole white dark Satan versus God thing is overplayed. I think there are lots of masters. You know, uh, uh, John, uh, Jesus even says this, when he says you can't serve uh, two masters, you know, money and uh, God, or the love of money and God. I don't think all of those things flow out of Satan, but that's kind of a whole other little argument that maybe I've been watching too much Constantine and some other videos. Uh, I don't know. But, so, okay, we've got, we've got this, uh, this situation. We're weakened when we, when we choose to go uh, with another master. Well, how much choice is in that? Listen, guys, there is no way to answer that question. 
It's the same difficult question of the, you know, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Okay? People have really simple, quick uh, answers that they give you, and all of them are just as unsatisfactory as the next. And honestly, it should be like that. Because anyone who tries to simplify something complicated uh, is ultimately doing you a disservice, doing themselves a disservice, because they're not getting you to think through it, figure out where you're at. They're giving you a quick answer so you can move on, and that answer can be quickly shattered when anybody asks even the simplest of questions to you about why you believe what you believe. Okay? The whole idea of free will is a very tricky idea. Now, I'm, I know I'm talking to a whole group of people here, some of which who come from this very staunch Arminian, everything we choose is, you know, uh, our choice. God imbues us with this choice. We're responsible. And some of you who very much are Calvinists, whether you realize it or not, and believe that we have very few choices, God himself calls us in, and then it's an irresistible call. We get it, and, you know, we just got to go with it. Let me just tell you something really clear. If you are staunchly on one side or the other, you haven't really fully addressed not only the scripture, but what a lot of really smart and uh, godly men and women of faith have really thought throughout the years. This is not an easy problem. To determine how much we choose something is a very, very difficult thing, a very difficult thing. Sociology has helped me understand that probably more than anything else has. And so while right now Paul is talking about choosing who we're a slave to, you can very much see he's preparing his argument in Romans 9 for the idea that when it comes down to it, this is really more about God's choice than it's about our choice, which is going to be an offensive idea later on. All right? But where is the freedom in free will? Okay? That's the real question. We've got to ask ourselves, where is it? But like the question of problem, the, the problem of pain and suffering, what ultimately happens in trying to answer this question is you have to come back to the idea of whether you trust God is who he says he is. You're not going to be able to come up with a perfect answer or even a satisfactory answer to the idea of why did I choose Christ or why did I not or why did some people uh, do it and why did some people not. It ultimately comes back to the idea of do you trust that God has given us in whatever mysterious way possible sufficiency enough to choose him if we want and to not if we don't. And this is is really hard, okay? This is really, really hard. Because at any given time I'm talking to people in here who think they've chosen God, but in reality they've chosen to be a part of a culture uh, of Christianity that they really like. And their individual relationship with God is either nil or, or very, very undefined and uh, unmatured. In the same way that there are people outside of our church who are trying to approach and move into that direction, who are truly seeking and, det- and trying to find God, trying to build a relationship with Him, uh, but you know, are surrounded by an environment where to make any reasonable choice that we would say is reasonable to approach God is not a possibility for them. Okay? Now, if this is getting a little bit too heady and a little bit too weird, I'm sorry, it's because I didn't prepare, right? So I'm just sort of off the cuff. Uh, So where is the freedom in free will? Where, Where is my decision in this option that I've been given? Because we know that some people have far more access to Christianity and to God than others do. So how can it possibly be free will that they've decided to follow God when there are plenty of other people who that just, 
doesn't seem a realistic possibility. Now remember, Paul talks about this at the beginning of Romans. He says both there are invisible qualities, but also that people have their own law apart from the law of God that they'll be judged by. And again, this is, this is really tricky because we're ultimately getting into this question of salvation in a pluralistic world and how does this all work? And I'm going to stop there and let you go do your research. But I really want to just hurt your brain maybe for a tiny bit because uh, that's what Romans 5 and 6 is doing. And so if we want to stay true to the text, uh, we've got to hurt, hurt our brains a little bit. Try to understand what it is that Paul is talking about here. And why in Romans 5 he seems to say we choose slavery and then in Romans 9 uh, it's basically no choice, it's God's choice. And who are we to judge uh, him for making the choices he's made? Okay? So I'll repeat it one more time, because this is an important question. Where is the freedom in free will? Well, but if we trust God, that God gives us sufficient uh, uh, opportunity and options to follow him, we're going to be okay with the choices we've made and the choices other people have made. If we don't trust him, and his character isn't central to this question, that we're going to have all kinds of varying positions on this. Some people are exclusivists. Some people are inclusivists. Some people are, my favorite is, a pessimistic agnostic. How can a Christian ever decide they're a pessimistic agnostic? What it, well, they're a pessimistic agnostic about salvation, which means they're like, I don't think it's going to happen for people who haven't heard about Christ. I mean, I don't know. I'm agnostic about it. But I'm kind of negative about my agnosticism. Guys, I'm not kidding you. This is a formal position among theologians. And a pessimistic agnostic or an optimistic agnostic about salvation. And it just gets silly. It gets really stupid and silly when you read people labeling them, themselves as these weird words and then not ever really stopping to think, what? Why, why did I decide that? That is so strange. But the question is there, and it's a very difficult one. Uh, for us to, uh, to try to answer. Well, let's look a little bit about uh, or into this, this idea of subtle slavery. How could people possibly get themselves into, some 50 million people, into a situation where they're slaves? Now, notice how I phrased that, right? Because if they're getting themselves into these situations, there's some choice in the matter that they got themselves in the situation. One of the documentaries I show, which is one of the more depressing documentaries in my sociology class, uh, was um, uh, in the late 1990s, everyone in America, particularly young people, were really interested in sweatshops and stuff. You know, it was one of our fad things that we were interested in. Uh, not like interested in working in one or uh, seeing them exist, but more like interested in fighting against them. And so uh, what we found out was that Saipan, which this is going to be a little bit crazy, is a U.S. territory... And there were hundreds of thousands of mostly garment workers that had been lured to Saipan with the promise of high wages. And what we found out is they were in dilapidated buildings, locked in, working 15 to 18 hour days, making dollar, two, three dollars a day, which somehow in Saipan, since it's a territory, the uh, government federal minimum wage didn't apply to them. And most of them didn't even pay back the bills they owed from the plane ticket over until a year and a half into their work. What do you think about that for a moment? So the promise of come on in, we're going to pay you good, you get to send all this money back to your family, separating moms from their families for the most part, from their kids. 
Well, did they choose to go into the slavery that they were ultimately into? Yeah, sure, they chose it. And how much choice did they have when it was presented the way that it was presented? And when Paul is talking about sin, and he's talking about being a slave to sin, he's talking about this exact thing happening in our lives. Whatever the power or the source is, it manipulates us into thinking and promising we're going to get one thing, and then we get stuck there, and at some level we wake up one day, and of course we've been telling ourselves the entire time, it's right around the corner, it's right around the corner, I know this is going to happen, here it is, this is going to be the day. And all that's happened within a year or two years, I've basically gotten used to being in my slavery. I might not even call it slavery. I might call it, oh, it's a bum deal, but all these other people around me are in it. So, you know, I'm like a pig rolling around in the mud. And pigs are actually pretty clean, right? So it's a bad analogy. But, and getting used to it as if mud is pretty much the only environment. You know, around me, eating slop and then I get a decent meal. You ever figured, how can dogs eat that stuff all day long? And cats too, Right? I mean, it's, it's crazy. My cats won't even eat real meat or, like, you know, human food. Well, I got one cat that likes to take chicken bones from my Wingstop uh, uh, basket. But you get used to it. And then you get that one meal that's really good, and that doesn't necessarily make you think there's some better life out there. It makes you feel appreciative that you even got a good meal. And that person who's eating that whole meal all the time takes for granted the fact that they eat good food. We get used to the environments we're in. And we were promised something, it manipulates us, and then we are stuck. The same way these women were stuck until OSHA came and started to advocate for them. And there are lots of settlements that came out of that. Big names, Gap, JCPenney, all of those things. And that's what kind of got us into this, I think, most recent understanding. Chelsea, what do you call it? Fast fashion? Where people are being used and abused. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm just saying you are the one that introduced me to that idea. <laughs> okay, good. That's good. Great. Yeah. And we can find somewhat of small examples to this in our own society as people get stuck into a workplace where they owe a lot of money up front or where they've been told one thing and their wages just simply don't come in. Okay, And there's a lot of examples of this. Well, Paul's saying this is the exact same thing that happens when you serve the king, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You get promised one thing, and you get stuck in your slavery, and it just becomes kind of the same old, and you get used to it. And one day you realize you've chosen slavery in some way, but you're just sort of stuck there. And that's what he's talking about when he's talking about slave uh, to sin and sinfulness. Promises us one thing. It's the subtlety of sin, which is kind of my second point. I don't really have points here, but where is the freedom and free will and the subtlety of sin? Subtlety of sin is not, uh, or sin, it's not often, particularly when it comes to people who are good people, do I go out and harm someone today? Okay? Do I go out and try to and attempt to you know, steal or plunder or whatever else. The subtlety of sin is often promised to us in that this is good for you. You are important. I was reading about a, a gal, 14, in Atlanta, talking, and they were just kind of detailing how girls get stuck in sex trafficking. Because we would just think, that just doesn't make sense. How could you possibly get there? Maybe a girl that's, you know, been abused her whole life or something like that and has no self-worth. Okay, maybe we can understand that. But this gal was quiet, 
She didn't have a lot of friends, you know, in high school, but came from a, a decent family, wasn't too expensive. She met some guy at a barber shop, he's quite a bit older than her. Uh, he loved her. He talked a lot about wanting to interact with her and wanting to be with her and all these promises that he had for the future. And so they started having sex, even though she thought, you know, this is really not okay. He's like almost twice my age. So after about two months into the relationship, he said, you know, we were kind of tight for money. Have you thought about maybe, you know, just sleeping with uh, a couple of my friends who would pay you to do that? Now, I know some of us would think that's not like a transitional conversation into anything. But, you know, this guy loved her, so why not? So, yeah, okay, we need money. We'll take care of it. We'll do it. We'll go in that direction. That's fine. Three months later, after having sex with 40 guys in one day, okay, she talked about being ready to leave. Uh, he pulled out a gun and made it very clear she wasn't going to leave. Well, again, where's the free will in all of that? It's the subtlety of sin. Sin does the exact same thing to us. And Paul is saying, listen, the opposite of serving a good master is serving a master who will tell you everything you want to hear, locking you in. You're stuck and you're far worse than you were before. And the idea of a slave to righteousness is not a bad thing at all. When it comes down to our weakness and our inability to do what's right, to make right decisions for ourselves, it's still slavery in the sense that we've got to in some ways beat our body. There's no way to get in line with what God wants us to do and have the spirit within us without being able to work hard and, and have uh, you know, days that are not fun, that we have to will our way through the decisions we're making. But ultimately, when we find ourselves serving a master who's good, that changes the whole, whole process of the slavery itself. Because then we can trust him. And I, I don't think Paul, again, Paul's using this metaphor here because he ultimately wants to use the metaphor of we, we transition from slaves to sons. He's not saying we stay in slavery to God. But in the beginning of our relationship, we really are, that's what we do, we choose our slavery. However we can, whatever level of that is we choose, do we want to be slaves to a good master, a master who ultimately always has our well-being in mind? And too often we paint pictures of God as if, you know, God's jealous and God just wants us for his work so we can evangelize the world, and God himself has an agenda that has very little to do with our thriving. And yet, that's just not the character of God. And so in Slaves to Righteousness, we're enslaved to a master who cares about us, who every promise that's made and more, the promises we never even thought could happen, do come true. As the Spirit moves us in the opposite direction of taking advantage of people and being taken advantage of, to actually serving and loving other people and being loved. And this is a radical, radical, radical example, and I think it's uh, for the original hearers, would have been really tough to swallow the whole slave example. They wanted to get out of slavery. And of course, Paul says, if you can, get out of it. But they wanted to, uh, Paul was trying to give them hope that within the midst of their slavery, in the midst of them having bad masters, there was a way that in a very more important way internally, you could serve a good master in God, a master that will turn your life the other direction. So, Wrap all that up by saying, um, you know, when it comes down to this question of, you know, are you sort of in the kingdom of God? Are you out of the kingdom of God? 
and how much that ultimately is that choice sort of available to you, you have to constantly come back to the beginning question of a relationship with God, which is always, do you, with the faculties that you have, the faith that you have, the experience you have, trust in who he is? And if you don't, if you don't, that's always the starting place. Because the starting place for faith can't be an answer to all these difficult questions apart from God's character. Nor can they be, well, I might not trust God, but I have a whole lot of people around me who I really like. Because yeah, sure, they're going to reflect God to some degree, but they're also going to reflect humans to some degree in their very base nature. And so being able to really, really figure out, do I trust God here, and is my relationship ultimately with him? Because you will end up serving a master. Whether it's the master and the variety of masters in our world who lock you in, make you think that you're doing something really great, and then you end up waking up one day and realize you're stuck. You're a slave to sin. And sin has its own agenda with you. Or we'll be slaves to God in terms of righteousness. Um, questions, thoughts about that one? I know it's kind of vague and, uh, and difficult, uh, but that's what happens when you don't prepare very well. Uh, thoughts? Romans 5, Romans 6, sermon itself? Particular questions? Guys, there's a lot of material on this if you really want to go in and think through some of these more difficult theological questions. And if you've got something specific that you want to know about this, uh, we've got a variety of books that we can, uh, we can recommend uh, that you can go dig into it. And these are really interesting topics because oftentimes these are the topics that people are mostly interested in uh, outside of, of faith, I think, in particular. Is this? Yeah. Well, on which topic, particularly? Because we address so many. Free will. The idea of how much choice do you have in the matter? Yeah, oh, sure. No, 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 it's not. So, uh, have you heard of the Four Views books? Okay, well, there's a lot of Four Views books. And the Four Views books are, are helpful in that they, uh, what they do is they present four views on an issue. Some of you have gone through the book that I'm about to recommend, but it literally is called Salvation in a Pluralistic World, which is what I mentioned earlier. And it's four views on that. And it's going to address two things. One, God's character in choosing people, the elect and the predestined, and people's ability to choose, okay? And the whole idea of irresistible grace and something like that. And so you're going to get four views. They're all going to give their views out. And then the other three are going to comment on those viewpoints. So they're very, very helpful. I would read one at a time usually uh, and then kind of ponder it and then move to the next one. You read the whole book through, you'll get really pretty mixed up on the arguments. But that book's very, very, very helpful. Is that idea? Salvation in a Pluralistic World. I can't remember what the four authors are. We've used, uh, we've used, and we've used two of them in some of the references and quotes that I've used. And it's going to present the, the general four arguments. Uh, it's not going to include, uh, like, post-mortem evangelism, which is a very strange idea that C.S. Lewis had if you read The Great Divorce, where, like, after you die, you can still get evangelized. I don't know, whatever, man. I mean, it's... <laughs> Great Divorce was good, so I'll go with it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a really good one on the topic of uh, free will and, and how much uh, people sort of choose these things. And I would always go back to saying that if people can make an argument but somehow can't bring in God's character into it, in my mind it's not a very effectual argument. Because if Jesus, the whole point of Jesus is for us to know who God is and all they've got are scriptures but no real understanding of God's character, which is a lot of what those theologians do, give you rational arguments, uh, then it's uh, not so helpful. Other questions, stats, 
about, the, about this one? Well, then, yeah, Tong. It wasn't a question, really. Yeah, I see it's the structure of this one was non-existent, right? Uh, that, that happens, free-flowing. Uh, where is the freedom in free will? was the first one, right? It's like a book title, yeah, really helpful. And then the second one is just the subtlety of sin. Problem of suffering? Oh, such a different topic, yeah. Problem of pain and suffering. Honestly, the best one is uh, C.S. Lewis's book about losing his uh, wife, um, uh, Surprised by Joy. Because it's not a theological argument. It's all about him dealing with suffering and grief and being really honest as Job was with God. How could you allow this? And coming back to the position at the end of, you know, the best I've got is the question of do I trust God's character or not? It's not do I have a great argument. It's not do I, do I feel any better? Because that's the thing, there's a professor here that many of you hate uh, who's a sociology professor at UNT, and he, would, he did these little, um, Yancey, yeah, George Yancey. Uh, he, some of you are laughing because you hated him. Uh, but he did this real cool thing for us really early on in our ministry where he did answering 10 common objections to uh, modern-day atheists. And, uh, and one of them was all about the idea that there's two kinds of people who ask you about problems of pain and suffering, people who are going through it, and people who just want to have a, a mental you know, argument. And the way you answer those are very different. That was really hopeful, I thought, because it's very true. Um, you know, because ultimately what we have is a loss of relationship, usually. And if we can bring it back to another relationship that we can trust in, I mean, that's really the only answer that any of us are going to be feel, feel good about. Not mentally. Remember last week, the whole ment- oh, the le- mental assent, verbal consent, that's not going to matter. Um, yeah. Any others? Right here. Yep. Right here. <laughs> okay, you, sir. <laughs> So rather than God just determining all your choices for you? You want that? Do, do you live? Do you live then or do you, are you really just a programmable robot, right? That, I mean, you, you dictated the, the, the emotions, the feelings, the things that you had. One of the really big confusing points that people get mixed up with is the difference between God uh, not being uh, limited by time and God actually making choices for you. That's a very different idea. I mean, you know, to be able to see time as a continuum is, we've actually got a lot written on it, and, and understanding is seeing it as, as less of a, uh, you know, sort of linear thing and more of an all at once. But because he knows what we're going to do before we do it, it has nothing to do with him dictating those choices for us. Uh, and, of course, the idea of the sex trafficking thing, again, the real question comes back to, uh, is God a fair judge? What things does he hold us guilty for, and, and what doesn't he? And that's why this whole idea of forgiveness is such a radical idea. But if you really think through it, it's the only possibility. Because, you know, so many of people, the things that they've done, the things that they will do, have to do with the, the in, environmental choices that were offered to them and around them. I remember, uh, it, uh, I've always been really interested in um, the development of gangs in South uh, Central L.A., um, kind of because we would go to uh, Disneyland a lot when we were growing up, and so just being in that area and knowing that there was like a Disneyland and kind of right in the middle of one of the worst gang-infested areas, it's just a strange, it's U.S. at its best, you know? Um, and uh, one of the things that you, you listen to with these, many of whom are Christians, they go to church, is they talk about kind of getting into this animal mode when they're in the streets. It's like they know what they're doing, they know what's happening, but if they're going to survive... These are the choices that are set before them. And, um, and just thinking about that and how do we deal with, how does God judge and think about those choices um, that in, in some ways 
weren't choices? And then how does he see people making choices that really are choices? And how does that work? It's just, there's no easy question. There's no easy answer, guys. We can talk all day long, and you can read plenty of theological books about it. The question comes back to, do you trust God's judgment? Uh, when you look at his experience, when you look at how he's, he's operated in Jesus and in the Old Testament, do you trust his judgment? Because if you don't, then you've got to rest on theories so that you can expect, you know, people are going to listen to your theories and think they're really smart and good and great. Well, I think the other thing you've got to remember, too, is so much of the stuff that we define sin, it has to do with a bunch of knots and don't do this. But that's not how God sees sin. I mean, God sees us as, uh, you know, anything that we don't do that, you know, he you know, created us to do and wants us to do is, is equally sin. So you've got a whole lot of people who are good people who haven't done anything wrong. But they've also not ever really done anything right. <laughs> uh, and maybe those are the people we've got to worry about uh, sometimes. Certainly that's how the Israelites kind of were uh, at their highest pharisaical level is they had done... Uh, uh, nothing real wrong, but a whole lot of things not right, and that was wrong. And so that's going to be really, really tricky. I think Josh just told me the book by C.S. Lewis is called A Grief Observed, Not Surprised by Joy. I, uh, that is kind of a weird title if it was Surprised by Joy in the midst of his wife dying. Huh? Uh, but I think it's A Grief Observed. I think that's right. Um, it's an excellent book, particularly if you're going through something really significant in terms of pain. You know, the way C.S. Lewis writes, and, and particularly when he buries his soul really honestly, is, uh, it's pretty powerful. Um, so, any others? Questions, comments? All right, I'll, I'll say a prayer and then we'll take communion uh, the way we do. You know, line up and uh, dip the bread and the, the juice. And um, I will tell you that if this is something you're kind of interested in, we'll revisit again in chapter 9. And so uh, I'll spend more time digging in and delving into the more practical aspects of, uh, of this idea of, of choice and how people make choices and, and what God holds us to. Uh, Lord God, thank you for creating us exactly how you intended to create us. That's so easy to look at our lives that are full of mistakes and full of making the wrong choice and being in the wrong spot and think you messed up somewhere along the way. Um, but we try our best to trust you uh, and try to understand um, and, and internalize and know that you love us and love us deeply. You really are a good God, a God that from the beginning set out to make us in a way uh, that reflects your character and that your mercy is never ending and can't be exhausted and that no matter what we've done or the people around us have done, um, that you are a merciful God, a God that is just and will uh, eventually do away with sin and, and corruption and evil but a God that in the meantime uh, has mercy that knows no bounds. Thank you for that in Jesus, that you would uh, show us an ultimate commitment uh, to us and, uh, and to our futures. Uh, we love you and we think about you now. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.